Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Criminal Mischief. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. Is it that one of the family members, which we we have proof, <laughs> was participating in this and it's in one of those letters? I don't know. I do know that Alfred knew about the escape. Hold on one second. Participating in knowing where John and Clarence are. Participated in the escape itself. Right. Okay. So... So then it's evidence. So they're saying, and that's not, you're just spitballing here, right? You don't even know if that's true, right? From the FBI's perspective? Um, I, I will say this. Um, you're like such a tease. <laughs> God. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't want to give too much out from the book. Because I, I, like I said. I that, do, but you got to, you, you know, you're telling <laughs> a good story. And I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm biting. So, um, <laughs> that's Ken Widener. And this was one of the many teases I was up against during our interview about one of the most enduring mysteries of the 20th century in America, whether or not three men escaped Alcatraz. My name is uh, Ken Widener. The book that I'm currently uh, in the process of having coming out, May 2024, which will be next year, it is called Alcatraz, The Last Escape. I can promise you it will not be like any other book. Some of the information that I uncovered, I really can't say a lot right this minute, but it it opened up an avenue of pieces that I promise you will just blow your mind. I had to wait until pretty much the end of the conversation with Ken before I was able to pry out a few juicy new details that will be revealed in Ken's book about the legendary escape that was said to be impossible, which has captured imaginations, sparked heated debate, and fueled theories for more than 60 years. You're listening to Criminal Mischief with Carolyn and Brandon. Episode 58, The Escape from Alcatraz. Most of the books that have been written about Alcatraz and the escape are pretty much, you know, very similar. They talk about the escape, uh, the things that they have learned either through reading materials or, believe it or not, a lot of people use and and base it upon the movie Escape from Alcatraz with Clint Eastwood. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, Can you say busted? My working knowledge of the escape was cobbled from a vacation to San Francisco in the 90s and watching the classic 1979 Escape from Alcatraz movie when I was a kid, starring the good-looking but brooding Clint Eastwood as Frank Morris, the brains behind the escape. Here's a scene from the movie where Clint Eastwood, as Frank Morris, arrives at Alcatraz and is forced to listen to the warden gloat about how Alcatraz is inescapable. The camera pans down to Frank's criminal file, which is open on the warden's desk, and we see he's been marked as highly intelligent. We also notice at the end of the warden's monologue that the nail clipper that was in the ashtray on the desk is gone. Alcatraz is not like any other prison in the United States. Here, every inmate is confined alone to an individual cell. Unlike my predecessors, wardens Johnson and Blackwell, I don't have good conduct programs. I do not have inmate councils. Inmates here have no say in what they do. They do as they're told. You're not permitted to have newspapers or magazines carrying news. Knowledge of the outside world is uh, what we tell you. From this day on, your world will be everything that happens in this building. You will shave once a day. You will shower twice a week. Cut your hair once a month. Now, the privileges, you can talk. You can work. Other institutions hand out work, but here it's a privilege that you have to earn. I promise you it's a privilege that you'll want. Visitors, you're allowed two a month. They cannot be former inmates of this or any other federal prison. All names that you submit will be carefully checked by the FBI. What names do you have in mind? I can't think of any offhand. Family members? None. No family. Alcatraz is a maximum security prison with very few privileges. 
We don't make good citizens, but we make good prisoners. Burglary, armed robbery, grand larceny. You'll escape from quite a few prisons, haven't you? That's why you're here. Alcatraz was built to keep all the rotten eggs in one basket. I was specially chosen to make sure that the stink from the basket does not escape. Since I've been warden, a few people have tried to escape. Uh, most of them have been recaptured. Those that haven't have been killed or drowned in the bay. No one has ever escaped from Alcatraz. And no one ever will. The movie ends ambiguously, leaning towards success. That the three escapees survived and swam off into the sunrise. Whereas the FBI believes the trio didn't make it and they officially closed their case on December 31st, 1979, when they turned the investigation over to the U.S. Marshals Service. Ken brings a lot of passion to the investigation because he's more than just an armchair detective and author. He's actually related to two of the three escapees. He's the nephew of Clarence and John Anglin. There are many things that get him going about the case, but what really hurts his heart is the idea that from the get-go, Frank Morris was billed as the brains of the operation, and that the Anglin brothers were, according to him, billed as just the dumb criminals with a third-grade education who tagged along. Because when you know their history, nothing could be further from the truth. The Anglin family was originally from Donaldsonville, Georgia. I think my mom was actually born in Donaldsonville, and she was she was well down the line in the in the the number of of the of the children. At some point in time, my <clears throat> my grandfather decided that Georgia just wasn't where they were, you know, could make a living at, and he took some money that he had from the war and he purchased the land down in Ruskin, Florida, which is just south of Tampa. And he moved his family down and they they had better farming from what I understand. They they had year round farming. Whereas in Georgia it was a it was a seasonal thing. But uh as far as money, they had no money whatsoever. I mean they were they were really, really poor. Uh when I say poor, they didn't have a bathroom in their house until like in the 1970s. Uh, they would take a bath on the front porch in a wash tub. That's, that's where they took baths at. Growing up in abject poverty is an important detail in the Alcatraz story because this is where John and Clarence cut their teeth at a very young age on learning how to use their clever little minds to create something out of nothing. Because necessity, as Plato so wisely stated, is absolutely the mother of invention. They came from a family of 14. Uh, it was seven brothers, seven sisters. Alfred was number five in the lineup. <laughs> John was the next uh, after Alfred. He was number six, and then Clarence was number seven. They were very, very poor. I mean, my my grandfather fought in World War One. They were dirt poor farmers. I mean, they, but they were very, very loyal to each other. And, you know, not having a whole lot, they learned to make do with what they had. I used to say that after reading all the stories and listening to all the stories from my, from my uh, relatives about John and Clarence, John was like the MacGyver of the 1950s. He could take anything and make something out of it. Over the years, Ken would hear elaborate stories about his famous uncles, John, the clever one, and Clarence, the charmer. This makes such sense that they would be so industrious. Yes. Uh, amazing at some of the stuff that they created as, child, as children. Well, they, they actually built their own car. They had, this is like this buggy. They took a old beat up tires and they stuffed it full of moss to make the tires where it would roll. And you know, I have a picture of it. It is amazing. It's hilarious the way it looks. They, they built their own bicycles. <laughs> they constructed, my mom used to call this, it was almost kind of like a, uh, like a seesaw, but it wasn't quite a seesaw. But they constructed it out of a stump and a piece of board. And they used that to entertain family members, you know, because you got to remember in a, in, a, in a family of 14, older children watched after the younger children. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and they would create things for kids to play with. And like I said, the, the things that they created to sneak out of school with, some of the escapes that they did when they were in reform school. It was all training. 
But sometimes the ability to create something out of nothing can be a double-edged sword. You know the saying, too smart for their own good. We'll never know if the England brothers had an opportunity to use their bond and ingenuity for good, like, say, the famous Wright brothers, who after four years of working together would create the first airplane. But unfortunately, the England brothers, number five, six, and seven, in the succession of 14 children, Alfred, John, and Clarence, went another way. At some point, they started robbing banks. And when they got caught, they would bust out of the prisons. But they had a tell. They couldn't stay away from their very tight-knit family. The familial gravitational pull was too strong. It trumped their good sense. And even when they wound up, you know, robbing and stealing batteries out of cars to make, you know, little small change, and they would eventually get caught and they would go to a a state prison. Uh, They were only there for a short period of time before they escaped. And they would always go, it was just the funniest story, they always went home. And the cops always knew where to find them at. They would go. I remember one time there, the story was uh, Clarence was in a state prison in the north part of Florida. And the family went to visit him. He, he had told him, he said, hey, will you bring my, my guitar? He was he was a musician. Then he writes him and says, I tell you what, just forget it. Don't don't bring it. But they came anyway. And he said, uh, uh, I'll see y'all tomorrow. And they thought he was joking. Well, before they could get back home, he had already busted out, swam across the, Tam- the Tampa Bay <laughs> And shows up the next morning, he walks in the front door or the back door uh, where the kitchen was, and they're all eating breakfast. He sits down and starts eating breakfast with them. And a few a few hours later, here comes the law and they, they arrest him and take him back to, to the state prison. So You know what's bad is that then after the escape, they could never go home again. You know? You're right. And this is the reason why uh, this was a very piece uh, important piece that Whitey told them. When they escaped in Alcatraz, don't ever look back. According to Ken, it was Clarence, the baby brother of the three, who would talk John and Alfred into robbing a bank in Alabama. A tipping point decision that would ultimately lead two of the three brothers, John and Clarence, to the rock. Clarence was a ladies' man. He was a partier. He was a a risk taker. You know, he was the one who originally came up with they wanted to rob the bank in Alabama. Uh, John didn't want any part of it to begin with. And Clarence talked him into it, you know, because they needed a fast car. John had a very fast car at that time. So Clarence was a risk taker. At the time, Clarence and Alfred were already on the run after another prison break. They robbed the bank in Columbia, Alabama. They stole, the estimated was like $19,000, but they recovered every bit of it except $500. When they were caught, they went before a federal judge uh, in Alabama. Now listen to this. They were tried, convicted, and sentenced in the same day. I have the manuscript of the court hearing. And you can tell that they took a plea bargain because the way that John answers some of the questions, the judge calls the court-appointed attorney for them up to the bench. said, I thought you talked to them about the deal. So there was a deal on the, on the, on the books or laid out, and they, they all three pled guilty. Okay, John received 10 years federal time. Clarence and Alfred received 15 years. And that's because they were already on the run for another escape. (laughs) They had escaped from uh, from Florida state prisons. They were on the run when when this occurred. That's the reason why they got 15 years. And they were basically probably told, you know, you go to Atlanta, you do your time with good behavior. You'll be out in a few years. You know, then very so they're sent to Atlanta the very next day to start their federal time. Well, the state of Alabama said, no, 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 no. They brought them back and charged them again for the same crime on state charges and gave each of them 25 years. That's when they decided that, you know, we're not, you know, and they pled innocent at that time. <laughs> they pled not guilty. Right, because they weren't uh, so, doing that deal. The deal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So Alfred, the whole time uh, that he was in the federal penitentiary in Atlanta, he wrote, and I have the letters that he wrote to the ACLU, he tried his best to get the state uh, overturned because of it being double jeopardy. But there was a precedence already out on the books that allowed this, a state to do this. 
According to Ken, the state of Alabama wanted to do more than give them all 25 years on top of their federal sentences. They wanted to give them the death penalty for the, oh yeah, they, they luckily got 25 years because right after this, I feel like I'm going, I'm jumping back and forth between stuff. Did they kill somebody or was this? No, no, this, this was, this was, uh, this was common at that time in the state of Alabama Uh, for bank robbery. You could receive the death penalty and they actually tried to electrocute them. They, they wanted to put them to death, but luckily uh, John, not even knowing what he was doing, Uh, before they fled and got caught after the bank robbery, he gave their brother, one of their brothers, $500 to hang on to them just in case they needed it in the future. And my grandfather, they were so poor, they could not afford to hire anybody to, to defend them. John tells his father, that he had given his brother $500. And my my grandfather drove all night long back down to Ruskin, Florida, where they lived, picked that $500 up, and that's what they used to hire an attorney <laughs> that basically got them from, from being killed in prison, from being, you know, uh, sentenced to death. Pretty harsh, right? Because even though it was in the late 1950s when this robbery occurred, It was a time not too far off from the Great Depression, which had lasted from 1929 to 1939. Ten years of the longest, deepest, most widespread depression in U.S. history. A time when banks were just failing and people's hard-earned money, their entire life savings, was just wiped out. Prompting President Franklin Roosevelt to sign into law insurance legislation that would federally insure deposits that people made into banks to safeguard their money. But the hardships left scars that ran deep during the Great Depression. And even though by the 1960s the banks were federally insured, still the community around the bank that they'd robbed felt personally and financially violated. So that even though the brothers were saved from the death penalty, they were warned after their federal sentences were complete that they'd have to come back to Alabama. And when they did, it was lights out. At the state uh, trial, the prosecutor turned to them and said, if you ever make it back to Alabama, you will never leave here alive. But they knew what was going to happen to them. Whitey said that when they escaped, they were not escaping Alcatraz. They were escaping going back to Alabama. Frank Morris was escaping going back to Angola because he escaped the state prison, and they had told him the same thing. When you come back, you won't ever leave alive. Something was going to happen to them. because the state of Alabama at that you have to remember this is the 1960s. <laughs> so think about this: their own uncle who lived in Alabama in that town, my grandfather's brother wanted them to be put to death. And the reason why is you you got to think of this this era. He grew up in the Great Depression. They had very very little faith in the banking system. <laughs> they would keep their money at home. And he thought that when they robbed that bank, they actually stole his money. I mean, this was a mindset of those people at that time. You're you're talking this little small community that felt like this was a personal thing to them. How dare you come in, especially white trash, you know, come into our town and steal our money. I mean, they felt like this was personal, like you broke into my house and and did this. And so the prosecutors, they actually closed down the, the college, the local college during the, the, the state trial, brought all of the people, all of the students in. And they would they put them up in the in the top of the I guess it was like a two story uh, courtroom. And the the students were chanting, electrocute them, electrocute them the whole time. I mean, they wanted them dead. And so. They felt like because they got off for 25 years that that wasn't good enough. They wanted to see them put to death. At the end of the day, Alfred was sentenced to a prison in Georgia. John and Clarence were sent to Alcatraz because of their earned reputation of escaping prisons. The Rock, Alcatraz, was a maximum security prison that had a reputation for being the harshest prison in the world. Even looking at it from afar... It was a forbidding place, a solitary island out in the middle of the San Francisco Bay. Alcatraz had been a prison since the Civil War, but in 1934, it was re-fortified with stronger iron bars 
It was heavily staffed, so they could conduct a dozen checks on prisoners a day, and they had strategically positioned guard towers, making it clear that if anyone tried getting out, they wouldn't get far. Alcatraz, at the time, was touted as the world's most secure prison, a place where the worst of the worst criminals like Al Capone, George Machine Gun Kelly, and Whitey Bulger served their time. Not only was the rock isolated and the rules were strict, in the 1930s, inmates weren't even allowed to speak outside of communal meals and rec time. Later, this punishment was revoked as being too harsh. But still, when John arrived at the Rock first in 1960, followed by Clarence in early 1961, they requested to be put in cells next to each other. The warden at the time was so sure of himself about his inescapable prison that even though the brothers had a reputation of escaping, their request was approved. Which meant that the brothers at least had each other in that desolate place, so far away from that family farm where they'd never had a lot of money, but it certainly was a place they felt loved. It's curious though, did the Anglin boys view being locked away in the most secure prison in the world, on an island, surrounded by frigid water, deadly currents, and man-eating sharks, did it become a challenge to escape the inescapable? The stats back then certainly weren't encouraging. According to the FBI figures, 36 men tried 14 separate escapes. All were caught or didn't survive the attempt, except three, John and Clarence Anglin, accompanied by Frank Morris. Now, Frank Morris had arrived at Alcatraz in January of 1960 after a series of convictions for bank robbery, burglary, and multiple attempts at escaping other prisons. So it's no surprise that the brothers actually knew Frank from a stint at a previous prison. The plan to escape Alcatraz would take 15 months of preparation, which meant the brothers were always on the lookout for things to use and, with a little spit and ingenuity, create something out of nothing just as they'd been doing their entire lives. They made homemade tools and a drill from a motor that was scavenged from a broken vacuum cleaner. And then there were the ingenious plaster heads. The Hollywood version of the story makes Frank Morris out as the ringleader of the escape. After all, he had an IQ of 133, which put him in the top 3% of the population. For scale, Albert Einstein was around 160. But according to Ken, Morris wasn't the driving force behind the escape. It was John and Clarence. When you watch the Alcatraz story with Clint Eastwood, you know, you get the impression that Frank Morris was the brains behind this escape. It was far from the truth. Even the FBI file brings it out that all of this was John Anglin's plan. And well, John and Clarence are the ones who made all of the hits. No one else made it. And they nicknamed them after childhood names that they grew up with. In fact, the one that they made for Wes, who didn't go, they named it Oink. And Oink was the nickname they gave Alfred when they used to grow up as, when they were growing up as kids. I mean, it's, it's totally amazing. They actually used heads, dummy heads. <laughs> they would take ladies who used to wear wigs. They had these styrofoam heads. They would put the wigs on. Well, their, one of their sisters used to do that, and they would take that head when they wanted to sneak out of the house, and they would put it in the bed with the wig on. And so when my grandfather came in to check on, because believe it or not now, with these 14 people, they lived in a three-room house. They had the kitchen, they had a bedroom, and another bedroom, and that was it. And so all of them were in one room. And so they would sneak out of the house as kids and they would put those heads in the bed so that when their grand, when their father came in, he would think they were still in the bed. <laughs> so this is something that they did when they were kids. Mm -hmm. And they utilized that same method when they got out of Alcatraz. We'll get to the fourth inmate, Wes, who was supposed to be a part of the escape shortly. But let's get back to those ingenious dummy heads that were so dramatic and important because they provided the much-needed cover at night when the inmates were working on their escape plans inside the walls, which meant they were outside of their jail cells. Here again, John and Clarence brought their amazing self-taught artistic skills to the table, and Clarence being Clarence was able to manipulate his way into a position at the prison's barbershop. When he was cutting hair and chatting, he purposefully let clumps fall into the cuffs of his pants that he'd rolled up. And then, at the end of his shift, he would walk back to his cell in full view of the guards. 
he collected enough hair to cover four dummy heads and their eyebrows. These plaster heads were so realistic, they were able to fool the guards during night checks, so it looked like the inmates were tucked into bed asleep. Clarence and John both were, uh, became painters, and they painted portraits. John painted two portraits of his girlfriends, his girlfriend and her sister, which we have today, and he used those paintings he, to get the paints that he painted all the dummy heads with, and also the back cardboard uh, inserts they used for the vents. That's where he got the flesh tone paints from. So we actually have those paintings today. Uh, they're very, I mean, they were really good. It was late at night when the four men, Frank, Clarence, John, and Wes, crept silently over to the back of their tiny prison cells that consisted of beyond sparse accommodations. Night after night, when the prison was on lockdown, the caged men crouched down by the air vents at the back of their cells. Poised with a crude homemade tool, each man in his own cell quietly drilled closely spaced holes into the wall that surrounded a ventilation grate underneath the cell's sink. They would use spoons to chip away at the concrete, and eventually, a portion of the wall large enough for a man to go through was removed. They were building and getting out of their the cells. John was actually the first one out of his cell. Uh, he's, he actually discovered how to get out of the cell by chipping away at the concrete. Of course, John had planned ahead. He'd painted four cardboard pieces that perfectly fit the wall vent that had been removed. He'd painted the color to match the green cell wall. So during the day, nothing appeared amiss in their cells. The vents were large enough for each man to shimmy through. Once they were on the other side, a tiny taste of freedom. The prisoners had gained entry into the unguarded utility corridor behind cell block B. Once through, the men would make their way down the corridor and climb onto the roof of their cell block inside the prison, a large enough space for them to set up their secret workshop, a place they would gather each night after placing their dummy heads at the tip of their beds. So when the night watchmen made their rounds, they were none the wiser. They would take turns keeping watch for the guard using a homemade periscope that John had constructed out of spare parts. It was crude, but effective. As winter turned to spring, the men would steal anything and everything they could get their hands on, including more than 50 raincoats. Clarence was a crack seamstress, and he painstakingly stitched them together to create life preservers and a 6x14 raft. The seams of the raft were carefully vulcanized, which is essentially a process whereby you heat rubber with sulfur to improve its elasticity and strength. They had access to, uh, I think it was two popular mechanics magazines. In there, they, they talked about how to vulcanize rubber, like how to make a life preserver out of rubber materials and how to uh, take something hot and melt the, the plastic to get, or the rubber together. So they took raincoats. They had over 50 raincoats that they had, that other inmates donated to them. <laughs> and they, they constructed two rafts and four uh, life preservers. And they took uh, cement glue and they would uh, put the seams together. John sewed them and then they had hot water pipes that were in the top of this, over the cell house blocks. And they would use those hot water pipes to vulcanize the seams. Now, people would say, well, wow, that's, you know, that, that probably didn't hold up too good. But in some of the FBI files, one of the life vests that they discovered, which had a hole in it, they took and patched the hole, covered it up, filled it full of air, and set 45-pound weights on it, and it stayed inflated for 45 minutes. Wow. They took the raft that they left behind, they inflated it and put weights on it, and it stayed for hours. But during the long months of planning, they still didn't know how to get safely out of the actual prison. The ceiling was 30 feet high, and they would have to carry all that gear. A eureka moment happened when they realized that they could climb a network of pipes that led to a ventilator at the top of a shaft, which they removed. But they would need to keep the ventilator in place until the night of their escape. So ingeniously, they cut a bar of soap into what appeared to be a realistic bolt from a distance. 
so the large vent still appeared to be screwed in place. But the escape team was having issues with their fourth man, Wes, who ultimately wouldn't go with Frank, Claire, and St. John that night. Ken says that he got the scoop from former Alcatraz inmate, the infamous mob boss Whitey Bulger, who he would exchange a series of letters with. I know one guy got left behind. Actually, he didn't get left behind. He didn't go for a reason. He chickened out? Not quite. In the 17 letters that I corresponded with Whitey Bulger, he shared with me a lot of detail about this case. Some things that I promise you no people don't know about. He was uh, he was very good friends with John Clarence and Frank Morris. He even told, I'll share this, he, he said that the first time he ever met John, John reminded him of Steve McQueen. <laughs> he said, he said, the very first time I saw John walk across the yard, I said, oh my gosh, that looks like Steve McQueen. <laughs> so, good looking, huh? I, yes, John John was actually, John and Clarence both were very, you know, uh, I guess good-looking men. Bolger was the organized crime boss of the Winter Hill Gang in the Winter Hill neighborhood of Somerville, Massachusetts, near Boston. He'd been arrested in 1956 for robbing banks and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Three of the nine that he served were at Alcatraz. And Bolger shared with Ken the details of why Wes wasn't included in the escape. At first, Wes was a very loudmouth individual. And according to, to Whitey, he started bragging to other uh, inmates about the escape as they were planning it and getting it going. Well, the, the trio went to him and, and basically said, OK, you have got to shut up <laughs> and you, you're not allowed out in the yard anymore without us. The surprising thing about the escape plan was that it wasn't this huge secret Many of the other inmates were aware of the fact that an escape plan was in motion. But there was Wes, who, according to Ken, was not only a loudmouth, but also a racist. Back then, it was still a segregated environment. Very few people know that, you know, that, that the African-American prisoners were treated very, very bad on Alcatraz. But their, their cells backed up to each other in that corridor, so they could hear everything that was going on. And they did not like Wes. Uh, because they knew how racist it was. And so there was a deal that was struck between the boss of the African-American groups there that basically kept them silent because they could have turned them in at any time and they could have gotten their sentence reduced, but they didn't. They did not do it because they were, they wanted them just as, just as much as the white uh, inmates. They wanted them to be successful because they felt like a successful escape from Alcatraz would shut that prison down and would allow them to be moved into other federal penitentiaries where they could get representation. They had no representation whatsoever. Nobody really did on Alcatraz because the only way you could get over there was, uh, was one lawyer who tried to help different inmates. But it was a, it was a really isolated place. And the inmates were right to help the escapees. Alcatraz would be shuttered in March of 1963. Authorities claimed the prison was too expensive to operate, that the decision had nothing to do with the escape of John, Clarence, and Frank. On the evening of June 11, 1962, guards would give the call for lights out. It was around 9.30 p.m. when the prison was plunged into near darkness. Frank, John, and Clarence quietly maneuvered into their holes, as they'd done so many nights before. Until that point, they could only dream of freedom. But on that night, maybe those dreams would come true. They convened at their secret workshop, loaded up their rafts and supplies, quietly climbed the pipes up into the ventilator shaft. Once on top with their precious cargo. The salty, fresh air must have tasted like a sweet victory, their hearts pounding in their chests, a mix of both fear and exhilaration. It was go time. Were they doomed to fail, or had their meticulous plans prepared them for freedom? There wasn't time to consider. They each took turns sliding down a large smokestack to the ground below. Later, FBI photos would reveal sooty shoe prints that led away toward the beach. The men were loaded with the rafts, life jackets, oars, and other supplies. Today, it's still unclear as to where the men entered the water. But ultimately, they did climb into one of those homemade rafts 
and in that moment, paddled away as free men in the wide-open, freezing, shark-infested currents of the San Francisco Bay. What happened next remains a mystery. Did they make it across the bay to Angel Island, where they then were said to have crossed the Raccoon Strait into Marin County, as they told Wes? At some point in time, Whitey said that Frank Morris threatened to kill Wes. And in fact, he had a knife (laughs) that he planned to do Wes in if the escape in any way went sideways. John was very good friends with Wes, and John warned him what was going to happen. And I believe that's the reason why Wes didn't go. And also, the plan was originally that they were going to go into the water and they were truly going to go over to uh, Angel Island. That was their original plan. And they were going to uh, go over to, they were going to cross the little strait. Uh, they were going to go into the next county, rob her, you know, steal a car and, and head to Canada. That's, uh, that was where their original plan was. The plan changed, but they did not inform Wes of the plan. Did they perish at sea, as the FBI believes? Or was there an alternate plan all along, one that they made sure to never share with Wes? It was early in the morning on June 12th. The twin beds that the inmates slept in were up against the wall and the prison bars. Inmates had to sleep with their pillow facing the metal prison doors. When the guard walked by the cells for an early morning bed check, inmates John, Clarence, and Frank were lying in their beds. The guard could see their heads, but they weren't getting up. At Frank's cell, the guard doing a check would reach through the bars and touch the head, which summarily rolled off the bed and hit the floor, revealing that it was a dummy head made of plaster, flesh-toned paint, and real human hair. The prison immediately went into lockdown. The FBI was contacted right away. The spoon proves mightier than the bars of supposedly escape-proof Alcatraz prison. Three bank robbers serving long terms scratched their way through grills covering an air vent, climbed a drainage pipe, and disappeared from the forbidding rock in San Francisco Bay. It appears to be the first successful escape in the history of the maximum security prison, and the flight is attributed by Warden Olin Blackwell to the deteriorating condition of the prison crumbling concrete and eroding metals with five million needed for repairs. The men the walls couldn't hold are Frank Morris and John and Clarence Anglin. Authorities believe that Morris, who has a superior IQ, masterminded the escape. Ironically, the wanted posters offer only the nominal reward of $50 each for information leading to the arrest of the prisoners. painstakingly fashioned dummies of plaster with hair of paintbrush bristles to stand in for them during cell check while they covered an escape hole with a cardboard grill. All of this was within easy visual range of the guards in the gun galleries. They climbed drain pipes to the top of the cell block and then slid down vents to the ground. Again, all of this within sight of guards. The escape triggered the greatest manhunt in San Francisco's history as agents of the FBI, Coast Guardsmen, Highway Patrol, Sheriff's deputies, and local police join in the search. Whatever their fate, the three convicts have apparently accomplished a feat that many have tried with no success. Ken was still a baby when his mother was ironing clothes and heard about the escape. I was like a year and a half old whenever she was uh, ironing clothes, earning extra money for the for the for our family. And she was listening to the radio and, you know, it uh, the bulletin came across the air on June the 12th that there had been an escape at Alcatraz. She she told me, she said, I knew exactly who it was. I knew it was them. She said she picked me up. She ran next door to uh, to our neighbor who had a TV set. And I sat on my mom's lap as she watched her two brothers uh, photos flash up on the screen uh, and them talking about the escape. So, I mean, you know, I was an early I was inducted early into this uh, escape from Alcatraz. Of course, it didn't take long for the FBI to question Wes, who told investigators that the escape plan was that once they made it to land, they would steal clothes and a car. But Ken believes that when it came to the real plan, Wes was never read in. Therefore, the information that he gave to the FBI 
wasn't true. The FBI asked him a very important question, and he didn't know he didn't know why, because he didn't have access to see the other other inmates' cells. Mm-hmm. But his information about what he did that night to me proves that he was not going to go. And even Whitey said that he was he was not he chickened out. And I even asked Whitey, I said, so what would have happened to Wes? Because everybody, all the inmates were pulling for this. Whitey even writes about how that he laid in bed that night, all night long, thinking about the escape as it was occurring. And that he, the next morning, everybody was just cheering. And Jay was just, it was so exciting. I asked him, I said, so what would happen to Wes if they, he told the FBI where they went on the path? I said, what would have happened to him? He said, we would have killed him the next day he walked out onto the yard. He said, he said exactly what we told him to say. <laughs> well, he knew that, so, they, that everybody was had the backs of your brother and, and Frank. Oh, yes. Everybody. Everybody in that prison. I say everybody from an inmate standpoint that knew about it. There was a lot of inmates knew about it. Uh, they were all pulling and cheering for these three uh, men. Within two days, a packet of letters that were sealed in rubber and belonged to the escapees was recovered. A homemade paddle and bits of rubber inner tube were also recovered in the water. Another homemade paddle was found on nearby Angel Island, and another homemade life vest was found washed up on Cronkite Beach. That's according to the FBI. The official FBI report also says that the escapees' raft was never recovered. But Wes says there was a raft found on nearby Angel Island, roughly 2.4 miles away, and supposedly footprints were found leading away from the prison-made raft. The prisoner's escape from Alcatraz was a slap in the face to the FBI, an embarrassment to J. Edgar Hoover personally, because they couldn't prove without a shadow of a doubt that the three prisoners had perished at sea. It seemed they'd been bested by so-called country boys who had gamed the system, who had broken free from a prison that was said to be impossible to break out of. But one thing we know for sure, the brothers' escape began a living nightmare for their family. Their phones were tapped, they were harassed by law enforcement, and surveilled for years. Before the FBI turned it over to the marshal services in 79, the FBI would come out to my mom's house all the time and question her. Uh, It is amazing the uh, amount of pressure that they put upon the family members uh, early on in the escape. I mean, it is totally amazing. The U.S. Marshals, they they tapped our phones for years. I'm not even sure that they don't continue to listen <laughs> to us today, although I, knowing, you know, that they're that they're dead by now. But what what, what is amazing have, that what evidence what? do you have to support that they tapped your phones? Oh, they told us. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the evidence they told us. <laughs> Which begs the question, if the FBI was so convinced that the men hadn't made it, that there was no way they could have escaped, then why were they so obsessed with the family? And why didn't they follow through with the evidence that they did have? Did you ever find the raft, that they, the bigger raft? You know, we have a story to tell on that one. Uh, And this is something that was left out of the FBI files, along with another story that's interesting. Uh, But yes, they did. They they did find that raft. And we we have two Alcatraz prison guards who found it. And we have a tape recording of them talking about it and giving it to the FBI. And the FBI still claims that they never had it. You have these recordings? Yes, yes, we have these recordings. Not only the recordings of that, we have a personal interview of a San Francisco police officer who witnessed that night the boat that picked them up, and they refused to believe him. Is this like a (laughs) don't look up scenario where it's like... Yes, yes, yes. You're exactly right. It's just like the movie Don't Look Up. You know, people know to... And we have, I mean, this, this San Francisco cop, uh, because they were giving him, they were almost accusing him of being part of the process. He gave an interview to the San Francisco Chronicle. I have the newspaper and we all, you know, when he gave it back in 1962, it's amazing what the story he told. And then we, we actually went out and interviewed him. Uh, he's dead now, but, uh, yeah, it's, it is. 
It's totally amazing. He tried to tell them, I saw the boat that picked them up, and they would not believe them. Apparently, that San Francisco police officer was watching the bay in the early morning hours of the 12th. He was near the shore when he observed a boat at the midway point between Alcatraz and the mainland. The boat was just sitting there, which was odd to him because he was very familiar with the area and it was unusual for a boat to just be there. He didn't see anyone fishing. It was just sitting there. This is an important part of the story, which we'll get into in a bit. Ken says that growing up, the brothers' escape was a dark cloud over their family's heads. There had already been a massive distrust of law enforcement. But over the years, this exhaustive investigation would metastasize this distrust into a cabal of anger, resentment, and paranoia. And if you'll recall, the Anglin family were very tight-knit. It sounds like when it came to the Anglin family, blood was definitely thicker than water. And at the time, they wanted to believe that the brothers had made it. They were encouraged after they went to visit Alfred in prison. Remember, he was the brother that had participated in that Alabama robbery. He too had been slapped with both state and federal time. And whereas his brothers were sent to Alcatraz, he was serving time at a prison in Georgia. The thing is, is that Alfred was about to go up for parole on his federal robbery charges. Not long after John and Clarence had escaped from Alcatraz. If you'll recall, he had taken a plea deal for 15 years. And then the next day, like his brothers, he was also charged again for the same crime by the state of Alabama and was ultimately sentenced to an additional 25 years. Now, if you're wondering how could Alfred be up for parole if he was sentenced to 15 years in federal prison, there's a story. We find out later that he participated, along with Whitey Bulger, in the MK Ultra CIA drug program in Atlanta. And that's what reduced his federal sentence. Now, some of these tests that they used to do was they would uh, give them uh, uh, acid and psychedelic drugs, and then they would actually shock them to, I know this was all part of the CIA program. <laughs> if you ever look up MK Ultra program, you would be amazed. Uh, Whether Whitey Bulger and Alfred Anglin actually participated in this top secret CIA program, I can't say for sure. But as far as MKUltra experimenting on human beings, that is absolutely not a conspiracy theory. It did happen. After the Korean War, American soldiers who'd been prisoners of war came back home and they seemed to be suffering from what the government believed was that the soldiers had been subjected to some kind of communist mind control techniques. So in 1953, the CIA allocated $25 million to start an illegal human experimentation program to develop procedures and identify drugs that could be used during interrogations to weaken people and force confessions through brainwashing and psychological torture. The code name for this top-secret project was called MKUltra. Some patients were willing probably having no idea what they were signing up for, while others had no idea. The CIA would exploit vulnerable patients at psychiatric hospitals and prisoners in federal institutions. The CIA's reach was limitless. They had also experimented on the general public without their knowledge or consent. I'll give you an example. One of MKUltra's secret operations was called Operation Midnight Climax where sex workers would bring buyers to a safe house where the CIA had installed two-way mirrors where, unbeknownst to them, the buyers, the men, were dosed with LSD. And behind these two-way mirrors, CIA scientists would sit there and study them. In 1973, in the midst of the Watergate scandal, the CIA went into CYA mode. The director ordered that all files related to MK Ultra would be destroyed, but thankfully a whistleblower a former State Department officer, John Marks, would come forward and write a book about the program. It was called The Search for the Manchurian Candidate. Ultimately, 16,000 documents that survived the purge, as they had been accidentally stored in a financial records building, they were discovered during John Marks' FOIA request in 1977. These documents were fully investigated during congressional hearings in 1977, where the CIA were finally forced to admit that the program existed. But Alfred's family wouldn't find out about the alleged MKUltra connection until much later. But they believe now that's how his federal sentence was reduced and the reason that he was going to become eligible for parole after his brother's escape. 
So when they found out that Alfred was killed in prison, they were shocked. We went to visit him on, uh, I think it was, it was December the 26th, uh, 1963. I have a photo of it that my mom happened to have had taken. And he told my mom and dad, along with my sister and me, I'm, you know, of course I'm two, I don't probably don't really pay attention to what was going on. Actually, I was almost three that, um, he knew exactly where his brothers were. He had, they had made contact with him. He gave my mom the evidence that they had contacted him. And then 11 days later, he was killed in prison. Ken believes that Alfred's death was caused because he had information about his brother's whereabouts. However, the family wouldn't find out about the circumstances leading up to Alfred's death for decades. But later on, they did go back and interview the cellmate that was a good friend of Alfred's who had spent time with him in other prisons. This was after Alfred's death. After they found out about the, uh, the item that John and Clarence sent hit their brother that cost him his life. And what did they, they interviewed, well, I, I have it. It, it. We have it in our possession today. It's a, uh, it, it, at first, it really looked like it was just an ordinary leather uh, picture of a horse that there was a secret note inside of it uh, between the, the bindings that he pulled out. He showed it to him. We have it today. But what makes this so what amazing note, is... What does the note say? What does the note say? <laughs> well, the note was... We don't have the note. It was destroyed. He destroyed it after he, after he, uh, after he read it. But he did tell my mom what was on it, that, you know, he, he said, I made contact or the brother... My brothers made contact with me or our brother, because that's also her brother's. And he said, I know exactly where they're at. And as soon as I make parole, he was up for a parole hearing in January of, of, 19, of uh, uh, 1964, just, just a couple of weeks away. Okay, This is what makes it so interesting. And um, he said, I know exactly where they're at. And as soon as I get out, I'm going to join them. Well, of course, he never made it to his parole hearing. They claim he tried to escape and was electrocuted uh, trying to get out of the prison. Now, does that make any sense? Like he's a he's a trustee. <laughs> he's coming up for parole hearing at the end of January, but yet he decides to escape. Ken says there's a lot more to the Alfred story. I have gone through those FBI files so many times. The the 17 volumes that is you know out to the public have heavily redacted, and I'm just amazed at some of the stuff that I've come across. Like. All of the interviews that were done, they went right after the escape, the FBI did, and they interviewed every single person at Alcatraz. They went back and interviewed every one of the uh, inmates that uh, at Lewisburg, at uh, Levensworth, at anybody who had any contact with Clarence or, or uh, John. And they went back to even some of the state prisons they were in. They interviewed every single family member. Now, who would you think would have been the obvious person that they should have interviewed? Family member and or prisoner. Well, the brother. They Alfred. never interviewed him. Not one time. There's no interview. If it's in the FBI file, they, they neglected to put it in there. I still believe today that he wound up giving his life for what he told my mom and one of his older brothers, which uh, even in Atlanta, he... He shared something with this brother that one of the U.S. Marshals that I worked with was very instrumental in helping me get access to something. One of the FBI files that were heavy, heavily redacted. It, it was to me, it was like putting together a puzzle. This was the missing piece that I needed. I'm actually shocked that you got all this stuff from the FBI because they are not easy to get anything from. Nope. I'm battling with them right now with my local congressman and senator. Believe it or not, they still have in their possession family items that the family members who wrote John and Clarence, they still have it in their possession and will not give it back. Like photos, they have a photo of me and my sister that my parents uh, wrote one of the brothers, I don't know who, who, who they had written, and other family members had sent you know letters and they have every bit of it and refuse to return it to us. What is their reasoning of why they won't give it? Because they, a, they won't tell us. 
They will not tell us. Is it that one of the family members, which we we have proof, <laughs> was participating in this? Uh, and it's in one of those letters. I don't know. I do know that Alfred knew about the escape. Hold on one second. Participating in knowing where John and Clarence are. Participated participated in the escape itself. Right. Okay. So so then it's evidence. So they're saying, and that's not, you're just spitballing here, right? You don't even know if that's true, right? From the FBI's perspective? Um. I will say this. Um, You're like such a team. <laughs> God. Okay. Well, I don't. I don't want to give too much out from the book because, I, I, like I said, I do. But you got to You. You know, you're telling a good story, and I'm. I'm like. I'm. I'm biting. So. Um, so if it's true that the FBI has these family photos and won't return them, the question is, why? According to their own website, quote. For the 17 years we worked on the case, no credible evidence emerged to suggest the men were still alive, either in the U.S. or overseas. The FBI also contends that, quote, if the escapees had help, we couldn't substantiate it. The families appeared unlikely to even have the financial means to provide any real support. So again, why not return the photos? Why didn't they follow up with that police officer who claimed he saw a boat on the water in the early morning hours of June 12th, the night of the escape, that the boat was just floating there? According to the cop at the time, that was very unusual. We have a personal interview of a San Francisco police officer who witnessed that night the boat that picked them up, and they refused to believe him. Earlier in the show, I said that this police officer's information would be a critical piece in corroborating Ken's belief that there's no doubt in his mind that his uncles made it out of those waters with Frank Morris and that they had help. Here's why. One theory is that the three escapees fed Wes, the guy who was left behind, a story that they were going to paddle ashore and steal a car on the mainland. But Ken believes they had no intention of paddling across the bay. That when they got into the water that night, the only place they planned to paddle to was around the island to where they knew there was a boat launch. Back then, boats would arrive like clockwork to ferry employees back to the mainland. The last boat left shortly after midnight. Which means it's absolutely possible that the escapees could have used a stolen electrical cord to tie up to the boat. They dropped off and then were picked up by that lone boat that the police officer saw sitting there and then suddenly rev up its engine and take off, heading toward the Golden Gate Bridge. This theory looked even more promising when the Anglin family received a call, out of the blue in 1992, by a man named Fred Breezy, who requested a sit-down with the family in their Ruskin, Florida home. Now, Fred Breezy had a connection with the family. He grew up in the same neighborhood when he was a kid and became really good friends with Clarence and John growing up. His name was Fred Breezy. And at the time, everyone just assumed that Fred Breezy was, you know, some type of a friend that they had at one point in time in their life. We uncovered a lot more about this, way more than what just friendships. At that meeting, Fred Breezy would drop a bombshell on the family. He told them that John and Clarence were alive. And he had proof to back it up. A photograph of two men taken in the 1970s. He said that John and Clarence were the men in the photos and that they had fled to Brazil, where they had been for decades. Ken shared with me a bit of this audio recording of Fred Breezy that was taken the day he came over to the family's home in 1992. Fred Breezy basically explains how the escapees towed on the guard boat just like they'd learned how to do when they were kids. The family never told the FBI about the photo of the brothers, their connection to Fred Breezy, or his claim that the brothers had hitched a ride on the guard boat and had fled to Brazil. In their minds, why would they? They had less than zero trust with law enforcement. But recently, Ken would team up with a retired U.S. Marshals agent who looked into Fred's claim that the brothers had made it to Brazil. And they found some interesting connections when they looked up Fred's extensive rap sheet. He was charged with a variety of crimes, but mostly weapons and drug smuggling charges. Apparently in the mid-70s, Fred Breezy was part of a drug smuggling ring. He was a pilot and would fly in a variety of narcotics from South America and the Caribbean to Central Florida. 
In fact, in October of 1976, Fred Breezy had crashed his prop plane that was filled with drugs in water near Florida. Breezy and his companion would be arrested for possession of more than $750,000 worth of drugs, and he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. And then eventually uh, their friend, Fred Breezy, who is the one who flew them uh, out of the country, uh, he got caught shortly after going down to to see them in, in the early 70s. He got caught for drug running himself. This was all about drugs. They were all into running drugs, including the, the brothers. And uh, he eventually gets caught. He goes to prison. And when he gets out, it's in, in 1986. It was in 1992 whenever he gave the family all the photos that we have today. And we, we actually have a, a recording of the interview that he gave the family, an actual recording of it. My mom, believe it or not, for some reason, and it, he, he met with them multiple times. Uh, but the second time they met, she, for some reason, had this thought, uh, I'm going to record it. And so she recorded it on a cassette player. It's like 45 minutes long, and it, it's amazing to hear him talk about yeah. his interaction with them down in Brazil. And as far as the photograph... According to Ken, it has been authenticated. The discovery of the 1970 photograph of John and Clarence. And that photo has been examined uh, by five independent facial recognition software experts. And the latest one came back uh, as a 99.7% match that that is John Anglin uh, in that photograph that was taken uh, in the early 70s in Brazil. So... To me, you know, that's 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 a huge piece of evidence that uh, we have. Here's Ken's breakdown of what he believed happened that night of the escape. So tight knit. Oh, my gosh. They were just you just wouldn't even believe how tight knit they were. Later, we would find out that one of the older brothers, we find out later on that he not only knew where they were at, he helped set stuff up. He didn't. He didn't participate in the fact that he actually like drove them somewhere, you know, but he did help facilitate the plan that when they made it into the water, they had a boat waiting on them that picked them up and their best friend flew them into Mexico. I mean, we have we have proof of that. Flew them to a place that was a resident of another mob boss. And after Alfred's death. They notified Alfred where they were at. That's how Alfred knew where they were at. Alfred had been to this place before. And when Alfred died, they their fear of him saying something drove them into Brazil. That's where they eventually wound up at, was in Brazil. Uh, that's where they married, they had family, and they purchased a pretty large farm, uh, which they made a good living at. And they're buried somewhere very close to there in some cemetery that we're going to find at some point now. And here, finally, at the end, we get to Ken's ultimate tease, the ultimate conspiracy theory that, who knows, just might be true. You would think that they are trying to do this because they want to locate John and Clarence. I am almost certain they have always known where they were at. And it was a convenient to leave them where they were where they were at. And I say that because when you read some of the stuff that's in our book, and I, I'm, I try not to be a conspiracy theory a nut. I, I, I don't consider myself to be one. And like I said, I'm going to lay out some things on the table for people to read. and You make your own mind up. And I think you will probably go, I understand why they did not want them to come forward. Because they could have had information that would have dis- that would have uh, gone against a narrative that was being played against our country at one time. So it wasn't <clears throat> what you're alluding to. Reading between the lines is that they didn't want them discovered because they didn't want to acknowledge that these pers- these people had survived and that they had escaped. You know, this inescapable prison. But it yeah. could be related to a larger. <clears throat> story that they I, I believe that i believe that john and clarence and frank morris while they were in mexico they were in mexico for a short period of time came in contact with someone in our that happened that something an event that happens after the escape that 
they came in contact with this individual. And after the event occurs and the narrative goes out that this is what happened, you know, to this story, they find out and realize that John and Clarence and Frank Morris, if he had contact with this person, could change the whole story that was being told to the public. Well, you know, you brought like Whitey Bulger into the. And well, there's a there's another there's another the, mafia involved in this. Okay, right. I'm saying <laughs> like the mob, the mob stuff makes you think of the whole conspiracy thing and Kennedy and yes, like yes, yes, you're you're going down the right track. <laughs> right. So I mean, this got quite a scoop here. Um, yes. 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 And you've got to be just so happy. I can see the smile on your face. Like, uh, I'm I'm telling you, it's gonna be it's gonna be a good book. Alcatraz, The Last Escape by Ken Widener and Mike Lynch will be released in May of 2024. Up next, join my co-host and producer Brandon Morgan and I as we discuss the escape from Alcatraz in our bonus episode. And as always, thanks for listening. From Cloud 10, Criminal Mischief is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, Music by Soundstripe. I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.